You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The nations are being prepared for Christ's appearance. This is the second episode in a three-part series presented at the Rugby Bible Prophecy Day on the 26th of February 2022. It's called Art Thou Come to Take a Spoil and presented by Brother Jonathan Bowen. In this episode, we will look at the context of the evasion described in Ezekiel 38, Joel 3, Zechariah 14 and Daniel 11. We will look at the land made desolate in AD 70, inhabited once again. We will consider the pretense for the evasion described in Daniel chapter 11 and see how Russia will come through the land, planting itself initially in Egypt. We will also consider the desire of the spoil. Look at what that entails and consider how Israel has become so prosperous. Finally, we will look at Russia's evil thought that coincides with the tidings described in Daniel, its move into Jerusalem, where it thinks it will reign supreme. When Russian forces advanced on Ukraine this week, the world as we have known it for the past 50 years has changed forever. Western nations are incredulous that Russia would actually do this, but Bible students have been anticipating this for over 170 years. This is the culmination of our expectations that has begun. But Russia's ambitions are much bigger than the Ukraine. The Bible indicates its future is to be the colossus of Nebuchadnezzar's image standing on the mountains of Israel. Now this is described for us in Ezekiel chapter 38. And perhaps if you just take a moment and turn up Ezekiel chapter 38, we'll take a look at those passages that are dealing with this. We're going to jump in at verse 13, which is really where the title comes from for this third session. We read there that Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, that is, Gog of the land of Magog, art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? So in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 13, that is the question that is being posed by the Southern Confederacy. And we plan on considering that during this second class. We're not going to lay again the foundation of who is Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, and the young lions thereof. Uh, That has been discussed in many prophecy days and is in the Bible magazine quite regularly. So Sheba and Dedan equate with a geographical area of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states in Yemen, while the mercantile power of Tarshish is Britain, and the young lions are its former dominions, including but not completely limited to Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India, and the United United States. So this is the group that is protesting against this Northern Confederacy. But what we'd like to do before we consider the question of the spoil is to put all of this into context. Context is extremely important when we're looking at prophecy. 
we look at the prophetic uh, phrases that basically are used throughout books like Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, and Joel, to, to name a few, and we try to put them all together. And this is kind of like doing a harmony of the prophecies, much the same way that we would do a harmony of the Gospels. Now, Daniel gives us the big picture, so we would like to start there. We're going to take a look at Daniel chapter 11. So if you just turn up Daniel chapter 11 and uh, have that open in front of you, and that really is where we're going to begin to survey the scene on what is taking place. Now Daniel 11 is a chapter that goes right the way back to Alexander the Great, and it really tracks the changes that have taken place in the Middle East, in the area of Israel, which is kind of at the center of all of this, as this battle goes between the king of the north and the king of the south, lasting over hundreds of years. In each verse, there can be 50 to 100 years between the one and the next one, as we even see with the latter verses from verses uh, 40 and on. Now, when we survey the scene right now, we have, of course, Russia up in the uttermost parts of the north that has really arisen out of the ashes of decomposing communism. And it is the dragon, basically, that's, that's come back to power once again. It has allied itself with countries like Belarus and some of the other ones making up its former Soviet empire. And it is aggressive, like we see in the room in, in the news right now. Um, it is a really aggressive power. And this goes back a ways. It took, of course, the Crimea in 2014. And then uh, as the events in Syria and Iraq took place, it moved its troops into Syria and Iraq and basically has never lent, left after 2015 with the ISIS crisis. Now, when we look further afield, we look at the Ukraine and we see, of course, it's now moving its forces into the Ukraine and looking to take over how much of that area, we don't know, and possibly further afield as well. But there are bigger ambitions that Russia has that are described in the Bible. And we'd like to turn our focus to those now as we consider what the Bible has to say. So if you've got Daniel chapter 11 open there, we read the context first of all that this is the time of the end when the king of the south is going to push at him. Now Brother Thomas and others correctly connected this part of the verse with the drying up of the river Euphrates in the book of Revelation. The king of the south being Tarshish and the Tarshish powers of Ezekiel chapter 38 pushing against the him, which is the Ottoman Turks, who were the possessors of the land. And so that was to be at the time of the end. Well, that, of course, has been going on since about 1917 or thereabouts. But what we see in the book of Revelation is its corresponding passage. Chapter 16 and verse 12, we're in the time period of the sixth angel who pours out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. So this was the unleashing of the powers of Britain, United, or, um, New Zealand, Australia, and the Indian forces, along with people like Lawrence of Arabia marshalling the Arabs together as they pushed the Ottoman Turks out of the area of the Middle East, Palestine as it used to be called. Um, they pushed them out of this area in accordance with Bible prophecy. And so they were removed from this area and dried up into what is considered Turkey today. 
And those events, of course, heralded back in 1914, 15, 16, 17, our brethren and sisters of the time were super excited by those events as they saw this as the hand of God preparing the way for the kings of the east, which, of course, is the saints. So everything going on in the Middle East since around that time has been the preparation for the kingdom of God and, of course, our place in it. So if we come back to Ezekiel chapter 38, we find there as well, we're talking about in verse 8, the latter days. So after many days thou shalt be visited, in the latter years thou shalt come into the land, right? So this is the target, the land that is brought back from the sword. Against who? Well, it's against the people that have been gathered out of many people. This is, of course, the nation of Israel. And the geographical area where they're now sitting against the mountains of Israel, which have always been waste up until this point in time, but they're going to be brought forth out of the nations and they shall dwell safely, all of them. <clears throat> and so this is an event that we're still looking for, is the dwelling safely of Israel and all of them as well as we'll look at in a moment. But notice here that these mountains have always been waste. Now, this is the word in Hebrew, korba, which means a place that's been made waste, ruin, or void of vegetation, and it is dry due to desolation and wars. It's the same word in verse 12 as the desolate places that are now inhabited. So when we look at that little phrase, and again, trying to establish context here, we can go back to Daniel chapter 8, and we can see in Daniel chapter 8 similar phrasing that's used here. Here we have in verse 11, the little horn magnified himself to the prince of the host, and by him was the daily sacrifice taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So this is when the Romans came against, the first of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of the Host, and of course they took away temple worship and the sanctuary was cast down. And then in verse 13 we read the question that is asked by one of the angels that Daniel is observing here, how long shall the vision be concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression that makes desolate to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And that word desolate there is the same word as always been waste in Ezekiel chapter 38. So we're talking about in Ezekiel 38 the result of AD 70 where the land would sit desolate for many, many years and both the sanctuary and the host would be trodden underfoot. Well, the question of how long links us up with the Olivet Prophecy. If you'll just turn in your Bibles over to the Gospel of Luke, where the Lord Jesus Christ comments on this here. The Gospel of Luke, and we read there in the 21st chapter, in verse 5 to 6, they were sitting there on the Mount of Olives, and they were looking at the temple and beholding its splendor. And the Lord Jesus Christ says to the disciples, There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And of course, you can go to Jerusalem today, as we did, and you can see the stones of the temple that were literally thrown down off of the precipice uh, and are all seen on the street down below. Every single stone being thrown down uh, as the, the Romans search for the gold that was coming from the temple area that had been, um, as it had been burned, and they threw these, these stones over as they were searching for as much gold as they could find. Now, 
that period of desolation would be for a, just a short duration. Well, it's a long duration, but in God's terms, it's fairly short. They shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So that is the time that was being spoken of in Daniel chapter 8, this time of desolation, which links with Ezekiel chapter 38, these cities that were always waste. So if we come back to Daniel chapter 8, we have that question, how long, verse 13, and it's answered in verse 14, unto 2,300 days, and then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, Bible students way back to Bishop Newton in 1754 were able to kind of figure this out. They dated it back from the time when Alexander the Great invaded Asia around the year before Christ 334. So if we were to do the math and were to take the beginning uh, period or the duration of 2,300 years and start with that year 334 with the extra year, of course, uh, for year zero, and as we push through those things, we find that we come to 1967. So the events of Ezekiel chapter 38, Joel chapter 3, Zechariah chapter 14 could not take place until we had the 1967 uh, six-day war when the sanctuary was cleansed, when Jerusalem was back in Jewish hands. And so when we look at this and we compare other prophecies doing our harmony of the Gospels, we come to Joel chapter 3 and we find a similar picture. Joel chapter 3, this is the context of Armageddon, of Ezekiel 38, Joel 3 tied in there, Zechariah 14, and Revelation 16 as well. We read there, for behold, in those days and at that time, well, what time is he talking about? When I bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat to plead with them there from my people and from my heritage Israel. So we see here the time period of the invasion of the land is post-1967 when the captivity of Judah, which is the area that a lot of people call the West Bank or the occupied territories, so it would include Jerusalem and Hebron and Bethlehem and places like that. Um, when that captivity is restored, it's at that point that he will bring again the nations down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And the issue is his people and his, in his heritage, Israel. So God has picked a fight with the nations based on how they have treated his people, Israel. So let's take a minute then and look at this invasion and see where it is. Come back in your Bible, if you would, to Daniel chapter 11, where we see there this is kind of laid out. And it's, it's the, the overall picture that we have in Daniel chapter 11, the big picture. And that's where we'd like to start. So Daniel chapter 11, and again we come in at verse 40. Remember, it's the time of the end when the king of the south will push at him. So this happened back in 1917 when the king of the south, the, the Tarshish powers, pushed at the king that was, or the him, sorry, which was in uh, Palestine of the day. So this would be the Ottoman Turks. And some people kind of say, well, that's a long time from 1917 to, you know, sort of a hundred years later. But when you read the rest of Daniel chapter 11, a lot of these events, the pushing backwards and forwards took place over 50, 60, 70, and a hundred years before a response would be seen. So that's not out of character with the rest of the book of Daniel. 
The him, though, being Turkey, that is pushed back out of the land of Palestine. And then we find the king of the north will come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships. And he's going to enter into the countries and overflow and pass over. So the king of the north, which is a synonymous term with Ezekiel chapter 38, Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh or Russia, Meshach or the Muscovites, Moscow, and Tubal, Tobolsk, and the area of Gomer, which of course is Scythia or what we would have called between the Don and the Danube today. All of those nations and right across Europe, those nations are going to come against Turkey like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships. That's the hymn of Daniel chapter 11, verse 40. And I used to get that a little muddled up, and I used to think that the hymn was Israel, but it's not Israel. The king of the north is coming against Turkey, the same power that was pushed out of the land of Palestine, which became Israel, um, by the king of the south, which, of course, at one point in time uh, was in 1917, when uh, Britain, well, mostly New Zealand and, and the Australian forces uh, would be used to push out um, and India would be used to push them out of that, that area of what was then called Palestine. So when we look at this, Russia has had a desire for Constantinople for many, many years. Don't forget that Constantinople, the center of, uh, of um, Turkey really, was the capital uh, of the old uh, Eastern Roman Empire. And the Hagia Sophia, which we see depicted here, was the Vatican, uh, the Basilica of the Eastern Orthodox Church built by the Emperor Justinian. But it was overrun in the, uh, in the, the uh, year 1453 by Mohammed II, when the Muslims, under the, the, the fourth angel, really, the, the Turks, I should say, the fourth angel uh, came out of the river Euphrates. The overflowing of the river Euphrates took place under the sixth trumpet in Revelation chapter chapter 9. And it's that overflowing that would be dried up when we come to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12, the drying up of the river Euphrates. Well, the Muslims and the Turks were pushed out of the land of Israel or Palestine as it was then and now is called Israel. But Russia has always had a desire for Constantinople. And this is seen, and this was pointed out to me when I was a young man, I was probably 16 years old, and Uncle John Ramson came to our little Prince George Ecclesia in the north of British Columbia at the ends of the earth. And there he pointed out to us that the Kremlin has these very unique crosses on it, which is the cross being victorious over, and you can see a little crescent moon there, and that symbol is the symbol of Islam. So Christianity would eventually conquer Islam, and they saw basically the taking again of Constantinople by Russia at some point in the future. And a lot of people have looked at this. Um, Ivan, the, you know, his will, and Peter the Great, and so on and so forth. Uh, this has been a desire of them for many years. In fact, this was one of the reasons why the first Crimean War took place, um, where you had Sevastopol under siege way back uh, in, in previous days. This area has a great religious significance. 
It's also a military strategic significant place because it's the gate for the Russian Navy to come from the Black Sea into the Mediterranean. And in fact, what was interesting uh, is this whole situation in Ukraine. Um, apparently, their president is going to be asking the Turks to close off the access for Russia into the Mediterranean. It'll be very interesting to see what happens there. But that has been their desire for many, many years, and that's picked up in uh, Daniel chapter 11. So when we come back to Daniel chapter 11 and we, we see what has been developing over there, Israel, of course, has been uh, developing for, for many, many years. After 1917, many more Jews came back to the land. In 1948, the nation was established as its own nation. My people, and they called themselves Israel, just like Ezekiel 38 said. They could have called themselves all kinds of things, but they called themselves by the name that Ezekiel gives to them in Ezekiel chapter 38. Well, we also have the other nations. We've had Jordan, Saudi Arabia, the Sheba Dedan, and of course tied in with them has been the alliance with the merchants of Tarshish, which initially also is going to include Egypt. They're all somewhat confederate together, and we can see this with the, the peace and security that's been going on in the land, the Abraham Accords and things like that that have been taking place. But Daniel talks about, of course, this king of the north. So we've got Russia and Belarus, and of course, eventually, the whole of Europe falling under their control and power. And what we're seeing is that slide westward now from Russia to begin bringing Europe under its shackles. As our brother Thomas wrote uh, in the book Anatolia, which we now call Exposition of Daniel, that Russia will be triumphant and Europe is going to be chained. But of course, there has going to be, uh, there has been other nations that are tied in with them. We have Iraq, we have Syria, and of course we have Libya and the Ethiopians marching with them. So you begin to see the situation of a northern confederacy, and then we also have a southern confederacy, a king of the north and a king of the south. And there sits Turkey in the middle of them, but as we read in Daniel chapter 11, they are destined to be overrun. Daniel chapter 11 verse 40, the king of the north shall come against him, so that's Russia with all of its confederate forces coming against Turkey like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and overflow and pass over. And so we see there the ships involved in this. This is very much about the Navy and the ability of Russia to get out of the Black Sea um, through the Bosphorus Straits and into the Mediterranean to conduct their other interests. And so here we have this idea of overflowing and passing over. So they're going to come down into the land of Turkey and into Cyprus, but it doesn't stop there. We read there, he shall overflow and pass over. Now, the word there, overflow, is the Hebrew word shataf, which means to rinse, to engulf something. Gesenius has the idea of to gush out, to flow abundantly, an overflowing shower, to inundate or overwhelm, to swallow with water, to rush swiftly, to overwhelm with a hostile force. So this is a very fast uh, war that's going to take place. It's what they used to call the Blitzkrieg, the lightning war, like the Germans did in the Second World War, where they ran um, through Czechoslovakia and Poland and so on, and then across the rest of Europe. 
And it says there that they're going to overflow, but also to pass over. And this is the Hebrew word abar, which is connected with Eber or Hebrew, the idea of a passer over. Um, so it literally means to pass over or through, to march over, to go over, to pass beyond, to pass through, traverse. Um, Gesenius has the idea of crossing a stream, and it's figuratively used of an overflowing army. So they're not to remain in that area of Turkey, but they are to overflow and to pass over. And of course, this is what the record goes on to describe for us. So the king of the north is going to keep rolling. He shall enter also into the glorious land, <clears throat> and many countries shall be overthrown. But these will escape out of his hand, even Eden and Moab, the chief of the children of Ammon. So we see here, he's going to be coming down through the glorious land. And Ammon and Moab uh, and, and Edom are going to be delivered. Of course, it's easy for us to identify them today. It is that geographical area. And in fact, the dead giveaway is Ammon. The capital of Jordan is Ammon, which is in that area of Ammon. So, I mean, these are things that are not difficult for us to discern. Those are going to escape. They're going to be uh, delivered, as the word means there. Um, but when we look at this and we see what's going on, uh, it continues on from here. He passes through Israel, and he's on his way down to Egypt. He shall stretch forth his hand also on the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he's going to have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all those precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians, of course, will be at his steps, or they will be marching with him, or in stride with him. So here we see this lightning war goes through the land of Israel, although it doesn't seem to deal with it uh, the way Daniel describes it right away, and it comes right the way down into the land of Egypt. That seems to be one of the key target areas. And this, of course, corresponds with the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 19, when God describes the time when he's going to give the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel Lord, and a fierce king is going to rule over them, saith Yahweh, uh, of hosts, the Lord Yahweh of hosts in, in Isaiah 19 and verse 4. And so there's a parallel here between the Egyptians' cruel Lord and the king of the north of Daniel chapter 11, and of course the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal that we read of in Ezekiel chapter 38. All of these different forces are synonymous terms. The king of the north, the cruel lord, and Gog, the prince of Rosh. It's all describing this same time period. So he comes into the land of Egypt. And we want to look at what exactly draws Russia into Egypt. Why would it target this area? And so when we look at Daniel 11 and verse 43 that we have open in front of us there, we find that it is the treasures of gold and silver and, of course, those precious things of Egypt. And uh, when we talk about the precious things of Egypt, we're not talking about a few you know, trinkets dug up from the mummies in Egypt. The idea of treasures are hidden stores. Uh, mikman is the Hebrew word. And precious things, kamad, is the idea of desirable things or things one covets or wants to take pleasure in. So that's what is, is drawing him down into Egypt. There's gold and silver and precious things of Egypt. Now, of course, for many years, you know, we've looked at this in verse and thought, like, really? 
Uh, Egypt is very much a third world country, kind of a dusty, dirty place. What on earth is there that would draw Russia down into this area? Now, don't forget, they were there uh, back before Sadat threw them out uh, in the 1970s. They were there in the 60s and they were there in the 50s after NASA had overthrown the, the government, the British-backed government. And so, um, you know, they had had influence in that area that just like Ukraine, they're going to look to um, take once again. But it specifically states treasures of gold and silver and these precious things of Egypt. Well, gold has been something that Russia has really been interested in in the last little while. In fact, um, we read here, this is an article from August the 10th, 2021. Russia has almost completely divested itself of U.S. dollars and has turned instead uh, to gold, a commodity that tends to increase in value during times of uncertainty. And right now it certainly is increasing in value as Russia makes the world uncertain. So it's kind of like, you know, bolstering its own investments. And it has an estimated 7,500 tons unreserved or, or uh, gold mines that have yet to been basically pulled out of the ground. But when you look at it here, they have a population of 145 million. Um, gold reserves uh, are in the 140 uh, billion dollars. And um, that is kind of like about a th just under a half of their, um, or maybe a third of their foreign exchange reserves. And most of those are no longer US holdings. Um, in between their foreign exchange reserves and their gold, they way outweigh what they owe. Now, if you look at China, China only has $115 billion in gold reserves. Britain only has 18 billion. Um, the United States has, of course, the, the greatest amount, 482 billion. But when you look at the United States combined debt of 30 trillion plus dollars and growing every second, um, if you were to combine their foreign exchange reserves with their gold reserves, it doesn't even make a scratch on their national debt. The same with China. Um, but Russia's actually in a pretty decent financial state in many ways, um, even better than Britain um, when it comes to looking at, you know, what do you owe and what do you have in, in currency and reserves? And of course, there's a lot more to it than that. We'd have to have Brother Stephen Whitehouse come and talk about the, the economics of it. That's not my area of speciality. But that certainly gives you uh, an idea of their interest in gold. They've been moving away from the U.S. dollar and have been focusing on gold reserves as the thing to underpin their currency. Well, what about Egypt? Well, we read here, this is uh, 2020, June 30th, Egypt discovers new gold mine in Eastern Desert with more than 1 million ounces of gold. And you think, well, what exactly does that mean? A million ounces of gold. Well, the estimated value of gold, and this is going to, I think, Wednesday night of this week, is uh, $1,914.40 US dollars per ounce, that is, which would mean this is $1,915,400,000 worth of gold. So that's a good boatload of gold and certainly something that uh, is of interest uh, to nations like Russia that are very interested in, in underpinning their currency with gold. 
And in fact, Reuters in uh, April 23rd of 2021 said Egypt could be one of the largest gold producers in Africa. So it is the gold producer in Africa. And um, the changes in the laws that have just taken place in Egypt have meant that, you know, for the longest time, people didn't explore Egypt for gold because the government took most of the money. And then the government realized, well, we're not going to get any money if nobody's actually exploring for gold. So they changed it and capped the state royalties at 20%. So countries like Canada now have mining companies going in there um, that are very interested in exploiting the, uh, the uh, Egyptian gold reserves. And so we certainly see in this uh, hidden treasures, things that have been buried under the sand for many, many years. Now, all of a sudden, uh, they're, they're rearing their heads and they, they are something that certainly that is going to bolster the Egyptian economy and is certainly going to be an interest to Russia. But it's not just, of course, gold. There are other things, and one of which is the natural gas that has been found off the coast of both Israel and Egypt. So gas prices this year have increased by 985% year on year. Um, and Egypt has an untapped 286 trillion cubic feet of this resource. And they plan on developing, as this article speaks about this, with America and other nations' help. One of the things that they have needed, though, is, a, is peace in the area. And, of course, the Abraham Accords that were signed a couple of years ago are helping to do this. And Egypt is partnering with Israel to de deliver gas to it, which will then get sent out into Europe. Um, and, of course, that becomes very interesting to Russia because it's trying to put a stranglehold on Europe with the gas. And if Israel and Egypt are combining forces to supply natural gas to Europe, um, this creates for them certainly something they're going to be interested in. Or, as the words of Ezekiel chapter 38 and Daniel chapter 11 kind of tie in, this idea of coveting, of looking for the precious things, the coveted things of Egypt. And so that's the picture we have there. But what about Israel? Let's take a look at what draws Russia down into Israel as well. So in, in Daniel chapter 11, we kind of have that overview. Ezekiel chapter 38 kind of gives us a more specific picture of why he's going into Israel. So as we looked at in verse 8, it's a land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people. So this is a restored land. And um, it's, it's a people that have come from all over the world. And they have settled themselves on the mountains of Israel, which have always been waste, which we looked at tied in with the, the uh, AD 70 prophecy, where they would be desolate for those 2300 years. Um, but those days would come to an end uh, in 1967. Of course, we've seen a huge uh, interesting revival in the economy of Israel since 1967. And they will be brought forth, all of them are out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely. And uh, all of them, it says there. And verse 11 goes on to state from this, it's a land of unwalled villages again. They are at rest. They dwell safely. And it is all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. And that's another interesting little phrase, all of them. So somehow peace has to come to Israel, not just parts of it, but all of it. And specifically the West Bank, which is the target of Ezekiel chapter 38 in verse 11. 
And so when this confederacy comes down, we're told in verse 12, it is to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn your hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations and have gotten cattle and goods. Now, the word there, gotten, is the word asa, which is a verb, meaning to work, to make or to produce, to deal with, to act with, to affect, to produce, to prepare. Um, it's it's really something that they've, they've labored hard at. Um, and they've gotten cattle, which is the word livestock, but it's the idea of a purchasable domestic animal. So this were things that people would trade in uh, back in ancient times. And of course, goods. Uh, which is related to the same word there. Uh, it's kinyan, which is the idea of something acquired, and and uh, cattle is mikne, uh, which is, of course, tied right into that same root word. It's a possession that is acquired, purchased property, wealth. Uh, the theological word book of the Old Testament describes it as a root denote, uh, denoting a commercial financial acquisition of movable goods to get property by laboring. And as the theological word book says that, you know, the laws of Israel, and this is going back to the time of, of uh, Moses, the laws of Israel safeguarded private ownership and the right to amass private capital. And so it comes from that same root 7069, as does the word cattle. So this is the picture that we have. They come for the commercial property, the financial movable goods that are there in the land of Israel. This is the stuff the Israelis have worked for. And of course, that's the question that we started with in Ezekiel chapter 38 and at verse 13, art thou come to take a spoil. Now that phrase there literally means, it's a verb and a noun of the same, same uh, root, to spoil a spoil, so to plunder a booty, a gain, or a prey. And it's used in 1 Samuel 30 and verse 16 of the spoils of war. So have you come to spoil the spoil? Have you gathered your company to take a prey? And it's the same thing. It's both the verb and the noun. Uh, the, the word baz, to booty, uh, to rob a booty, basically. The idea is to, to rob, um, which is the verb, and then the booty, which is the actual thing that is robbed. And it's described in Ezekiel 38 and verse uh, 34, verse 8, as a flock being a prey to wild beasts. Uh, Deuteronomy 1, verse 39, where they describe the little ones as being a prey. So these are things that will be uh, pounced upon and will be taken. That's what Ezekiel 38 describes Russia as coming down to the land for this silver, gold, cattle, goods, and this great spoil. So when we look at Israel today, we want to ask the question about the secret of Israel's success. Where on earth does all this spoil come from? They're a ragtag bunch of people that were dragged out of all the nations and put into the land of Israel, which was a desolate wilderness when they got there. Now, we're going to back up to the time of Mark Twain, because he asks the question about the Jews in general. He says, if the statistics are right, so this is writing in 1899, time of Robert Roberts, if the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race, and it suggests a nebulous dim puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. 
properly the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of and has always been heard of. He is, is as prominent on the planet as any other people. His commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallest smallness of his bulk. His contribution to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, um, and abstruse learning are always out of, uh, way out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. So this is Mark Twain saying, well, what on earth is with the Jews? How is it that they have been so prominent and their commercial importance so extravagant? Well, of course, there is a practical explanation to that is they weren't allowed to own land for the longest time. So they worked in business and commerce and banking. And so, you know, you have people talk, oh, the Jews are going to take over the world, the world bankers and the elders of the Protocols of Zion and some new publication out now about the, the Rothschilds and whatever. But the, the point is, for years, that was what they were allowed to do, and they did it very well, and people don't like them for it, um, as they never have really liked them at all. But he goes on to say, he has made a marvelous fight in the world in all the ages he has done with his hands tied behind him. He could be vain of himself and be excused for that. He talks about the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Persians, rose, filled the planet with the sound of splendor and faded off to dream puffs and passed away. The Greeks and the Romans followed and made a vast noise and they're all gone, which is interesting that Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, that's the image metals. But anyway, um, they've come and they've gone. Other peoples have sprung up, sprung up, held their torch high for a time, but it's burned out. And now they sit in twilight or have vanished. The Jews saw them all, beat them all, and now is what he's always exhibited. No decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakness of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal, but the Jew. And all forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? Now, the answer to that, of course, that Twain was trying to figure out and really couldn't figure out is given to us in the book of Jeremiah, where God states, though I make a full end of all nations, Egyptians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But it's not just them being a nation. It's their success that is a bit of a miracle. In fact, there's a book called um, The Startup Nation, The Stu Study of Israel's Economic Miracle, that goes into this. And they, they spend page after page comparing Israel to other small nations, nations that have come through adversity and complexity of, of hostility around them and, and a refugee population and conscription and all the different things. They say, well, what is it that makes Israel so special? And their conclusion is this, the secret then to Israel's success is the combination of classic elements of techn technology clusters, the way they do stuff, with some unique Israeli elements that enhance the skills and experience of individuals, make them work together more effectively as teams, and provide right and readily available connections within an established and growing community. So they put a lot on the fact that Israel has uh, conscription and that people go into the army, they join places called Talpiot, which is like the elite of the army. And then these people go on to found all kinds of 
businesses and nations and they make all these connections and they have all their army buddies that they can basically work with and they have uh, they don't go into university and college typically till several years later because they have to do their military service for before so they're more mature and and he discusses this whole thing but you know the book misses the whole point what is the story of Israel's economic and the last word there miracle the author gives the credit to man but that's not really the picture the real picture is that the miracle of Israel is God's doing now let's just turn to Jeremiah chapter 31 if you would in your Bible um, and let's look at this because I think this is important because there's lots of conspiracy theories rolling around out there about Israel and taking over the world and Bilderbergers and and all this kind of stuff and and you have to kind of sit back and um, think okay well what does the Bible say about it? never mind what the tabloids say I mean this is kind of like tabloid news it's right up there with the National Enquirer and stuff like that um, the Sun or, or whatever you might want to call it in Britain um, but in Jeremiah and it's the, the verse in chapter 30 verse 11 where he says about though I make a full end of all nations I will not make a full end of thee but when we come to chapter 31 God is pretty clear about this we read there, at the same time, saith Yahweh, will I be a God, the, the God of the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace and went into the wilderness. So we think about Ezekiel chapter 38. We talk about a people that are brought back from the sword. So this is a similar type of language. But he calls them my people. And he goes on to say, Yahweh hath appeared unto me of old and, and said, Yea, I have loved them with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee, and again I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin daughter of Israel. So God says, It's my love with which I brought Israel out of the nations, and I brought them into the land. And it's him that is doing the building again of Israel in the land. Now that's his claim. That's his claim that this is God's doing. That's what he says. And whether we believe it or not, or whether even Israel acknowledges or not, it's what he's going to do. Now notice here, if we come down and, and look further on here in verse 27 over the page, Behold, the days will come, saith Yahweh, I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of men and the seed of beast. So he's going to increase the population of both people and cattle in the land. And if you go on and, and look at basically, uh, this is the, the reversal of the process from AD 70. Remember, it says, it shall come to pass, verse 28, like as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, and to destroy, and to afflict. So that's your AD 70. So God says, I will watch over them to build up and to plant, saith Yahweh. So he is the doer of Israel's success. And you can look at the population growth of, of the different nations. Israel is the green line at the top. Uh, they have a population growth per capita that is basically above, or just the, the actual rate of growth is above UK, USA, Canada, France, and Russia. It's the highest of all of those nations. So it's been growing. And you might say, well, you know, um, okay, so the population is exploding, but surely they need it because it's such a dangerous place to live. Really? 
Well, in fact, the life expectancy in Israel is higher than the United Kingdom, higher than Canada, higher than the USA by far, and higher than France and of Russia. In fact, it's the highest of all of those nations, um, their expectancy. So they live longer in the land of Israel, even though it's in theory such a dangerous place. But not only do they live longer, but their population by age, most of them are under the age of 19. Um, so we find here the biggest population bulks for Israel are under the age of 19. And you have the, the ages of 0 to 9 and 10 to 19. That's where <clears throat> almost, you know, uh, pretty much it's, it's about um, 3 million of their population are in that category um, of those under the age of 19. So it, this is an exploding population. A lot of countries like Canada and others, the, the younger generation is just not having children. So they're concerned about the, the growth of Canada and we're bringing all kinds of immigrants to make up that, um, that loss of, of, of uh, growth of population. But not so in Israel. It is growing substantially. So when we go back and read about this, I want you to come now to Ezekiel chapter 36. This isn't, you know, Israel's prowess and their brilliance and so on, um, although they might think of it that way. That's kind of irrelevant. Um, but sometimes, you know, we argue and we rationalize in our minds that Israel's current state, you know, that they can't be deserving of this kind of blessing. But the problem is, we've got it all backwards. Ezekiel chapter 36, and, and if we come here and take a look at the passage, starting in verse 22. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord Yahweh, I do not this for your sake, so house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned amongst the heathen whither you went. I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the nations, and you have profaned it in the midst of them. And the nations shall know that I am Yahweh, saith the Lord Yahweh, when I will be sanctified in you before their eyes. How will I going to take you from among the heathen, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land? So he's not doing this for their righteousness, but for his holy name's sake, which, of course, he made promises to Abraham, and he is making good on those promises in the very days in which we live. So if we think that somehow, you know, this is all wrong because Israel as a people is not deserving, that's not the point. It's about the promise that God made to Abraham. And when you think about it, you know, God's blessings are based on those promises. We're not deserving, and yet God is going to give us a place in the kingdom. Israel's not deserving, but he's going to work with them, and of course he's going to definitely gather them out of the nations and, and work with them further um, and bring them in and, and prepare them in his land. But that's what he's doing. He's bringing them back, and he is blessing them there. Now come over to Joel chapter 3, because I think this is important to understand. In the context of the invasion, when the nations come into the land, God claims that Russia is actually taking his stuff. And it's just an interesting thing to pick up on in Joel chapter 3. If you come down, again, we've got our context in verse 1. When I bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, he's going to gather all nations and we'll bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and we'll plead with them there for his people, for his inheritance, or his heritage Israel, whom they have scattered amongst the nations and parted my land. So here we have the situation. Um, it's his, name, his land, 
his people, his heritage. So there is no Palestinian land in God's eyes. I mean, this is post-1967, when I bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, he says it's my land. So let's not get confused by the humanist politics of the world and the nonsense of, of the, the you know, replacement theologists and so on. This is God's land and he has given it to the people of Israel. Now notice what he goes on to say. If you just skip down to verse 5, describing this, he says, You have taken my silver, my gold, and have carried into your temples my goodly pleasant things. Notice that? Silver, gold, and goodly pleasant things. God says, those are mine. This is his doing. And that's what the world forgets, but let not us forget that. So if you look at the gross domestic product of Israel per capita, it is four times higher that of Russia. Russia comes in around 10000 just under $10,000. Uh, Israel is over $40,000 per person for their gross domestic product. So definitely a good reason why Russia is going to look at Israel and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, they're doing pretty good down there. This is something that we want our hands in. Look at the investment capital per capita of Israel. It's over two times higher than any other nation of the, on the capital. People are putting money into Israel and investing in it because they see in there these great potentials. They're kind of like, you know, Potiphar or the jailer who saw Joseph being, you know, and, and he was prospering with everything that was going on. And so kind of like put him in charge. And that's the same thing here. Nations are looking at Israel and saying how well they're doing. And so consequently, they are investing more into this area than any other nation. Over two and a half times the level of the United States and basically more than two times any other nation uh, on the planet. So again, these are the things that we're seeing currently. This is the Times of Israel. This is the 17th of February this year. The article describes Israel's economy growing by 8.1% last year, surpassing all forecasts, the first place among Western countries. Now, this is during times of COVID. They've grown by 8.1%. It's their highest in the last some 21 years and high of all the Western nations, which is amazing. And you look at that and you say, well, how is that possible? How is this all going on? Again, it's God's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's also nothing new. Now I want you to open your Bibles and go all the way back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12, because I think it's important to see this. We're saying, well, this is God's doing and he claims that it's his doing uh, in the prophecies there. But just take a look at the pattern of Genesis chapter 12. Remember what he says, it's for my holy name's sake. So we're dealing with a God who is making good on his promises. And those promises to Israel began back in Genesis 12 and verse 2, where he says to Abraham, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. So he's going to bless Abraham. But well, what practically did that mean? And if you look at Abraham's lifetime, just over a couple of pages in Genesis chapter 19, or 13, sorry, in verse 2, we read there that Abraham was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And you go, hmm, where have I heard that before? Cattle, silver, and gold, and, and these great riches. Well, of course, that's the language of Ezekiel 38 and Daniel chapter 11. 
That's what God did to Abraham. That's what God is doing with Israel. But it's not just Abraham. Come over a few pages to Genesis chapter 26. This is the promise that God made to Abraham or to Isaac. Yahweh appears to him and he says, Don't go down to Egypt or dwell in the land which I dwell in the land which I tell you of. And he says in verse 3, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and I will bless thee. For unto thee and to thy seed have I give, give all these promises, or these countries, sorry. And I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And so he's going to multiply his seed and he's going to bless them because Abraham obeyed his voice and kept his charge and his commandments, statutes and laws. So that's what he says there in Genesis chapter 26. But if you come down and we're just looking at the ESV now, it kind of picks this up and come down to verse 12. Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Why? Well, because Yahweh blessed him. And what happened? Well, he became rich and gained uh, more and more until he became very wealthy. What did he have? Well, he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now, that's super interesting because that word possessions there is the same word mikne, which is the word used of cattle in Ezekiel chapter 38. It's commercial things that could be bought and could be sold. That's what God did with Isaac. This was part of the Abrahamic blessings that God brought upon them. Now, of course, it's not limited to them. Come over to chapter 31. We find here Jacob, who's leaving Haran, who's leaving Laban, and he's going back to the land as instructed. And what we find here is that the same language is used. In Genesis 31, if you come down to verse 17, Jacob rose up and set his sons and his wives upon camels, and he carried away all his, and notice the words here, all his cattle and goods which he had gotten, the cattle of his getting which he had gotten in Padad Aram, or Padan Aram, for to go to Isaac his father in the land of Canaan. The word cattle is that same word mikne, and his getting is kinyan, the things acquired, the same word that's used as goods or possessions in Ezekiel chapter 38. So this is what's happened in Israel today are Abrahamic blessings, the same that Abraham saw, Isaac saw, and Jacob saw. This isn't, you know, dirty Jews making money according to the stereotype that the world would have us believe. This is the blessing of God upon them, not for their sakes, but for his holy name's sake and for the promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And that's why he calls them his goods when we read about this in Joel chapter 3. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 11, that great overview chapter, which kind of describes the whole thing and gives us that extra detail about Egypt. We left off in Daniel chapter 11. Russia had come down into Egypt. He will stretch forth his hand upon the countries. The land of Egypt will not escape. He's going to have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians will be marching alongside him. So that's where we left off. And that, though, um, is, is kind of where he's come to. But at some point in time here, there's a report that strikes him. Tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. So the bulk of his force now is down in the land of Egypt. And tidings out of the east and out of the north 
is the area of Israel, Jordan, that kind of area over there. And these tidings, we believe, are the result of the beginning military campaigns of the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints. So let's just take a look at this. Uh, we're going to go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 33. And this, of course, is the picture of the saints taken to Sinai for judgment. And it's from there that they rise up. This event never happened historically when Moses wrote about this. It's a prophecy of the future. They didn't come through Seir back in the day. They went around it. But in Deuteronomy 33 verse 2, we read, Yahweh came from Sinai... He rose up from Seir and shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them, yea, he loved the people. All thy, his saints are in his hand, uh, and they sat down at his feet. Every one shall receive of thy words. Moses commanded us a law, even an inheritance in the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people of the tribes of Israel were gathered together. So this, this little phrasing here is talking about the gathering of the saints from all over the world to Sinai for judgment. Ten thousands of saints, and that phrase comes up multiple times, it's in Revelation. And they're there to be instructed to receive the law. And all the saints are in his hand. And the heads of the people uh, on the tribes of Israel are gathered together. Because the saints will be the heads of the tribes of Israel. That's what the Lord promised to Peter when he said, Lord, we've forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? He's told that unto you it is going to be given to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They will be the heads of the people and the, and the, the tribes of Israel basically gathered together there. So this is where we have this picture. And it's from here, of course, that Joshua would rise up and he would go through the land. And he would go up the eastern side of the river Jordan and would enter into the land. Well, the saints are going to more or less follow that same path, except they're going to go through the land of Seir, as Deuteronomy chapter 33 tells us. Habakkuk 3, another one of those parallel prophecies, we read that God came from Teman, verse 3, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, the earth was full of his praise, and the brightness was as the light or the dawning of the day, he had horns or beams of light coming out of his hands, and there was the hiding of his power. So this is the rising up, as Malachi calls it, of the son of righteousness, with healings in his beams or his wings or his hands there. And we see this idea, before him went pestilence, burning coals went forth at his feet, the tie-in with Revelation chapter 10, the, the rainbowed angel. He stood and measured or shook the earth, and behold, he drove nations asunder, and the everlasting mountains were scattered, the perpetual hills did bow, um, his ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So this is the area of Saudi Arabia in the north there, and Edom, the southern part of Jordan. These are the areas that seem to be struck first in this military campaign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Russia sees this and hears of these tidings that trouble him, he's going to go forth and go back into the land of Israel. Now those tidings, it's interesting, one of the passages we could bring in here is Zechariah 6, 
where it's describing, uh, he says, I turned and I lift, verse my verse 1, my eyes, and I looked and behold, four chariots came from between two mountains and the mountains were mountains of brass. So we have here the king of the south and the king of the north, the everlasting mountains that will flee as, as Habakkuk described them. And the Carabic chariots are going to go between the two of them. So that kind of gives us the route. And between the two of them is the area of Mount Seir and Basra, as it's also called. And these are the four spirits of the heavens which go from standing before the Lord of all the earth. And they're going to go from here and they're going to scatter out into the world. And we find here that Isaiah 34 has the same idea. Uh, verse 5, my sword shall be bathed in the heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea, which of course is Edom, and the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of Yahweh is filled with blood. It is made the fat with fatness and the blood of lambs and goats, the, the fat of kidneys and rams. For Yahweh hath a great sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Idumea. The unicorn shall come down with them, the bullocks and the bulls, their land shall be soaked with blood, and the dust made fat with fatness, for it is the day of Yahweh's vengeance, the year of the recompenses. Why? What's this all about? For the controversy of Zion. And so that's the picture, the consistent picture we get in all of these prophecies. In fact, if you come to Isaiah chapter 63, when Israel meets the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes up, there's a conversation that goes on as they come into Jerusalem. And so we, we have it there in Isaiah 63. Who is this that comes from where? Well, from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Answer, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Question, wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments like him that treads the wine fat? Answer, I have trodden the winepress alone, for of the people, that's Israel, at this point in time, there's none of them with him. I will tread in mine angry, trample them in my fury. Their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment, for the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my, again, redeemed is come. He's coming to redeem Israel, sending them the Redeemer that we read about in Romans chapter 11, which will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So that's the picture that we have, and that's the same idea that's carried throughout all those prophecies. So we come back to Daniel chapter 11, and he has these tidings out of the east. It causes him to return to the land and plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain, and that's when he's going to come to his end, and none shall help him. And it would appear that this is the moment of that evil thought where he decides to take Israel properly, so to speak. And there's, you know, we, we can look at these phrases and, and sort of how do they all work. Ezekiel doesn't include the going down into Egypt, but it's a lightning war. He goes down there and turns around pretty fast and comes back up. And so we see here in Ezekiel chapter 38, he has this evil things come into his mind, verse 10. He's going to think an evil thought. And of course, he's going to go up to the land as we looked at, and he's going to go to take a prey and a spoil 
and to turn his hand upon the desolate places that are inhabited, the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods, and they're there in the midst of the land, which is that West Bank area. That's the picture that we have in Ezekiel. Zechariah has the same thing. Behold, the day of Yahweh again it cometh. He's going to gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle. But what are they coming to do? Thy spoils shall be divided in the midst of thee. So this is where they come. They come for spoil, a plunder, a booty. It's that same word. Uh, in 1 Samuel 30 and verse 60, the spoils of war, it's going to be divided, which literally means to, to divide asunder, to share, to allot, to a portion. Gesenius ties it with the idea of, of um, using a lot to divide something out. Uh, Isaiah 33, 23 describes the great prey and the spoil that was divided and the houses are going to be rifled and other terrible things are going to be happening. And the rifled word there is the idea of shakak, uh, to plunder or to spoil. It's the same language of Ezekiel chapter 38. And this, if we go back to Daniel 11, uh, the next verse tells us that at this time, Right? This is while all this is going on. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince that standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, and that's the nation of Israel, unto the same time. So Michael, who like El, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to stand up. This is that anastasis, the resurrection that's going to take place. There's going to be a time of trouble, uh, distress, trouble, vexation, such as never was. But it's also the time of deliverance. Because at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. So while the world shakes in its boots, that's what's going on in the Ukraine. We're looking for the Lord Jesus Christ during this time when all these events are basically percolating away. He's going to come and he's going to resurrect the saints. Deliverance will be at this time. Many that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's your judgment seat. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever. So what we are expecting, basically, is for the resurrection to take place. The generations of Christadelphians that have fallen asleep, who have been looking forward for these things, being raised back to life again, along with all the saints throughout the ages, because the things are not going to continue as they were since the fathers fell asleep, as we read of in 2 Peter 3, but rather our fathers are going to be raised to judgment. The saints who have slept in the dust of the earth will awake and start perhaps filling our halls on a Sunday morning as we meet to remember the Lord. The door opens at the back and in walk all these brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep. And we which are alive and remain, as Thessalonians tells us in chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, will be taken away together with them. And those who are considered to be wise, the word is sakal, to be prudent, circumspect, have understanding or insight. And that's why we come here today, so that this day doesn't take as a thief in the night. Those that be wise are going to shine as the brightness of the firmament. That is our time to shine, not with our own glory, but to reflect our God's glory as the kingdom of God is established upon the earth. So as Russia comes down to take its spoil, as it's looking to spoil the Ukraine right now, as it's laying up for itself treasures on earth, the exhortation for us is not to do this. 
Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust corrupt and thieves like Russia break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Brothers and sisters, we just cannot go on like the world is just going to keep on going and going and going. It's not. The events in the Middle East are great signs of the times so we can see God's hand at work and realize that we are living on the knife edge of the kingdom. And all the treasures that we could amass, whatever is important to us, won't mean a hill of beans when the Lord returns. It's treasures in heaven that will matter above all else. And so with all the things we have seen today and what our brother Don is going to talk to us about next, we know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. But it shouldn't come to us as a thief in the night. You, brethren, are not in darkness that that should over, day should overtake you as a thief. You are the children of the light, the children of the day. We are not of the darkness nor the night. Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So let us, brothers and sisters, take stock of our lives and think about whatever it is that might stand between us and the kingdom of God. It'll be different for every single one of us and recognize that now is the time to trim our lights, put our candles, uh, fill our, trim our lights, get our candles ready, basically, put our sandals on our feet, gird ourselves, take our staff in our hand, link arms with those around us, and be as men that wait for their Lord, meeting him with joy and expectation, rather than fear and trepidation, because we are not prepared. May each of us then not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.